Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Yeah, he, yeah, he, this coat is now in session. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This is another edition of Digging Through the Cushions, which is basically an episode where I put together interviews that were not long enough to make their own whole podcast. This time around, we got two strays. One, an American soldier's experience in South Korea in the late 1960s. And then some stories from an upstate New York man who served both as a judge and a bail bondsman. So let's start with the judging. He is the judge. He is the judge. Everybody knows that. I was in upstate New York, which is a rural area. It's, most, it's an area called the Adirondack Park, which is like six million acres that state land, and you have all these little communities interspersed within the park, and what they call the Blue Line. It was originally set aside as a water or wildlife preserve back in the late 1800s for New York City because the Hudson River starts at Mount Marcy, which happens to be the highest mountain in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, which is right near Lake Placid, which was outside my living room window if I wanted to look at it any day of the week. But And you became a judge. Now, explain what kind of judge that you were. Well, New York State, your entry-level court is either a village, town, or city court. For a village or a town court, you do not need to be an attorney. For a city court, you do, or a higher court, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do need to get elected. The, for the entry courts, which is the uh, village and town courts, which is probably the most common one in all of the state, um, once you get elected, you have to go to school for it. The state trains you for three weeks over five-day periods mm-hmm. before you can actually sit on the bench. And then you have to have take annual training every year as well as online training mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So that qualifies you, which makes you feel like, okay, the first day you go to court, I got elected, but what the heck do I know about, you know, justice system? And uh, then you find out without really being told that uh, it's a three-way agreement most of the time. Probably 98% of the cases that end up coming to court are plea bargains. Okay. So you have the public defender there who's an attorney that's hired by the, the county district attorney. Uh, they have what they call assistant DAs or... They represent the DA's office in every little town and village court in the county. And they're there for traffic violations, DWIs, domestic disputes, anything which is essentially a violation or a misdemeanor. Uh, Anything that is a felony charge does get arraigned in town or village court. But after you've done the arraignment, at some point the case gets transferred to county court. Unless there's a plea agreement made between the DA's office and defending attorney from the client that they sometimes you know will reduce a felony charge to a lesser charge what did you do before you became a judge oh i've done a variety of things for 35 years as a sideline i did bail bonds in lake placid i also uh, had rental properties so i was which my call a landlord uh actually one of the cases i'll talk about stems to my rental property <laughs> So talk about some of your more memorable cases as a judge. Most of the stuff you tend to see being a tourist town is um, either 
alcohol-related barroom issues, people having too much to drink, combination of alcohol and maybe, you know, um, drugs that you're not supposed to have, you know, illegal drugs, marijuana, although recently they changed the law in New York where recreational marijuana in small amounts is now tolerated, whereas up until last year, it's a misdemeanor charge if you were caught in possession. Mm -hmm. And yeah, one of the cases I had, uh, like in New York State, a DWI is a .08 of alcohol or higher. Above .15, it's a felony charge. And if you've had two DWIs within 10-year period, it automatically becomes a felony if you have it on your record. This one time, somebody I knew very well used to deliver my fuel oil for my properties got arrested late at night, and he had a .32. I don't know how he could even walk, never mind Mike. drive. Wow. You know, everybody knew Mike, and Mike always had a good, you know, cherry-colored face, and mm -hmm. Mike liked <laughs> to have his alcohol. Yeah. It's just this one night, you know, he just couldn't make it far enough to his mother's house, and he clipped the car going home, and that's mm -hmm. what prompted the stop and getting picked up, and... Being well-connected in the community, because it's a small community, what do you do, you know? One of the judgments you have to make as a judge at arraignment, especially with drugs or DWI, is whether or not the individual really understands what's going on at the arraignment. Because it could be 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And if he's a .15 or a .20 or higher, he very likely may be too drunk to understand what the proceeding is. Okay. So one of the things I would regularly do for everybody's safety, because I had no idea what the guy would do afterwards, is I would usually remand him to the county jail and have him come back in the next morning after he might be reasonably sober, mm -hmm. and then finish off the arraignment mm -hmm. before I would adjourn the case to a regular court date, which happened in his case. You know, I put him in jail overnight. You know, he would wake up in the morning, find out where he is, and that's probably one of the few times where, as a judge, you have some power to inflict a degree of awareness. can't really call it punishment, but a degree of awareness as to why somebody did something and why they got stopped and why they got arrested. Because part of the problem, I think, being a sitting judge in an entry court like that is, this is not a kid you have in court, it's not your kid, but you end up as a judge at that level sort of being the father in the community. So if somebody misbehaves, well, guess what? There's a degree of punishment involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a timeout. You go to the county jail, sober up. We'll have you back in court. We'll go through the charges again. I'll tell you what your rights are. And then you give them a court date. Let me ask you this. Because you knew the guy and he actually worked for you, would that be considered a conflict of interest? Or in a town that small, is that just unavoidable? Well, at the arraignment, because it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, unless it's an immediate family, family member, mm -hmm. like if it would be a brother, sister, mm -hmm. aunt, or uncle, technically I can't do the arrangement. Mm -hmm. uh, according to New York State law, someone within seven degrees of being directly related to you, you cannot do an arraignment or hold a case on. Mm -hmm. You might be able to do the arraignment, you know, if it was like a distant cousin or something like that. But as soon as you finish the arraignment, where, whereby the defendant you automatically put on the record not guilty. So you're really not influencing the case one way or the other, and then you would pass it off 
to another judge. And sometimes you really don't know until a few days later. Oh, by the way, judge, is this guy related to you? <laughs> Fortunately, with my last name being Hulshoff, I know I didn't have any relatives in town. Because you were the only one with that I name. I was the only one with that name, okay. so, you know. Right. Which also made it an advantage for the community for me to be sitting in that position. Sure. I remember one case where uh, I had this rental unit, and I had a single mother with two kids, and one of them was like a three-year-old, and um, good old Johnny boy, you know, the mother really didn't know what to him. The kid had a temper tantrum. He had behavior problems. He'd be in the backyard, and I happened to be up on the top floor of the building uh, looking out in the backyard, and I noticed Johnny throwing rocks at my car, you know. I says, Johnny, you better stop doing that. Uh-huh. As I went downstairs, naturally he's throwing rocks at the car again, you know. Johnny, you keep that up. You're going to end up in jail someday. Well, guess what happens, you know, 25 years later. Who ends up getting arrested and shows up in my court? <laughs> for throwing rocks? <laughs> no, it wasn't for throwing rocks this time. Johnny was one of these kids who just had trouble in school, you know, never really knew who his dad was. The mother had three kids with three different guys, wasn't married to any of them. She tried her best, and I understand, you know, being in a tourist town, there isn't a lot of choice sometimes, and uh, good old Johnny just ended up on the wrong side of the tracks, you might say, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, he ended up dropping out of high school, ended up getting a girlfriend, Ran away from home, you know, ended up in Florida, got in trouble there with some girl. He ended up, you know, doing drugs and things like that, so that became a problem. Well, good old Johnny, you know, at one point just didn't know what to do, so Johnny shows up at home. But, you know, now he's 26 years old and gets into an argument with his mother because his mother at this point probably had enough and spent enough money over the years, you know, bailing him out of cases or paying off some of his fines or Mm -hmm. some of the other stuff and they got into an argument and he ended up almost strangling his mother so he got charged you know with assault and strangulation and good old johnny shows up in court again and this was probably the second time i had him i think the first time might have been for a dwi and i remember saying to him says johnny do you remember me when you were three years old (laughs) i hate to tell you but i told you so good old johnny got arrested ended up going to jail his case got postponed, you know, to the next criminal court date. He came to a couple of them. He missed a couple of court dates, so you adjourn it. You put out a bench warrant for his rearrest to see if you can find him. In the meantime, Johnny took off to some other state and didn't show up. And uh, actually, it was probably seven years later, I still had a bench warrant out from him. And he served some time, you know, in state prison in Pennsylvania, I found out. He did some prison time in... South Carolina. He apparently had another child somewhere in South Carolina. And again, he wanted to come home, and I guess he served his time, but he still had this bench warrant mm-hmm. pending. And, you know, now you get the mother coming in pleading, Judge, would you consider dropping the warrant? I said, you know, I really can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, the case is still open. Uh, only the district attorney can decide what they want to do with the case. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if he wants to show himself voluntarily, yes, I can dismiss the warrant once he appears in court but it's for him to show up if he doesn't show up and we find out where he is you can also have the problem which that's probably another story but you know um it's like a young lady i had one time coming into lake placid with a bunch of her friends from syracuse area 
and it's a party town like Placid, and she was underage, and she showed a false ID and went into a bar, and they were starting to card people, and the bartender took her ID away from because apparently it looked like a real fake ID, and there were a number of kids in there that had fake ID, so the police got called, and the police are in, and they're interviewing the kids, and this one particular girl happened to give false information. Instead of being honest with the cop, Mm -hmm. she gives false information, which is automatically another misdemeanor. So when the cops really found out, you know, who she really was, because one of her other friends ended up, you know, ratting on her, she ended up getting charged with a misdemeanor of impersonation, and being from out of town, you set bail on them. Mind you, I released her at the time, but she didn't show up for court the following time when she had court, so you send out another notice, and whatever their address is in the meantime I was getting correspondence from a friend like judge you know can't you just be nice to her she made a mistake it's 300 miles all the way back to Lake Placid it was just a dumb thing you know well unfortunately the justice system you know is in motion you can't exactly turn it off I says no I can't really do that besides I would have no idea who wrote the letter Plus, when I get a letter like that in the court, I'm not even supposed to read it because it might bias me, so the clerk has to read it and make a determination as to whether it might be something that might influence the court improperly. And then, you know, she would have to file it and notify a copy of the DA and probably to the public defender in this case. So eventually I had a bench warrant out on this young lady, and yeah, she probably ran a stop sign, and the police pulled her over for it, and... They run her record and says, hey, you got a warrant up in Lake Placid. Because it's a misdemeanor charge, she ended up getting called into the police facility down there, which happened to be a state police, and they detain her for a while, which, you know, is an inconvenience, and she gets detained, and they call Lake Placid, what do you want us to do with this case? And Because we're not going to extradite somebody for 300 miles away and spend police time to go and get her. You say, well, she still has an active police warrant. Here's a new court date, and she has an obligation to show up on that court date or the warrant, you know, remains out there for her. Well, in her case, twice she got picked up by police. Twice she got detained because of a valid warrant out there, and she finally decided, well, maybe I better go back to court. She shows up with her mother and gives the court a long story about you know, the problems in her family and the drug problems in her family. And I says, that's all well and good, but you still have this open charge. And I says, you know, if you're willing to do so many hours of community service, I'll waive the fine. If I get verification in the community service, then I'll close the case. And she had an obligation to find a place where she lived, have whoever was going to supervise her community service, you know, get in contact with me, even if it was only by phone, and verify that she had done the community service. And when she'd done that, I would, you know, finish the case off just by correspondence. Well, the first time she didn't finish the community service. She was supposed to go to a Goodwill and work for 40 hours, you know. They all think, you know, it was just a bad ID. You know, I gave the police false information. But yeah... Do the community service. It's over and done with. So, you know, eventually she did end up coming back to court. She finally did end up doing community service. And you end up getting to know more about the family and the problems. So I guess I got to be a softie at some point and says, well, fine. If you do 20 hours, 
I'll reconsider where you are, but you've got to get your supervisor to let me know you've done the 20 hours, and then I'll decide whether you need to do 20 more or not. Mm -hmm. And it depends on the report I get from the supervisor. So she went and did a good 20 hours. She got a positive report, so I dismissed the rest of the case and waived any fine that she had because she was automatically looking at a $170 fine, which is a state surcharge on a misdemeanor, so she didn't have the money. She didn't really have any good jobs. And she also dropped out of high school, which didn't help her. But somehow she had money to party. Oh, they always have that, or they have somebody else's money. <laughs> so that turned out okay in the end? Too. Yeah, that turned out okay. Well, what about the rock thrower? Whatever happened to him? Well, the rock thrower actually is still out there. He served his time in two different states. He still has an outstanding warrant for his case in Lake Placid. And I had his mother reach out to me last year and see Judge... Can you contact maybe the public defender's office and see, considering how much time he's done in state prison for Pennsylvania and South Carolina, because I don't want to press any more charges of his intended strangulation, and it's now a seven-year-old case. Can you see if the district attorney might consider dropping the charges? And I says, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. I will contact, you know, the public defender mm-hmm. and pass on the message, but I'm no longer the sitting judge, and it's still a valid warrant, so... And you're retired now, right? Technically, I'm retired as a sitting judge, yes. Mm-hmm. So you, you still retain the title, mm-hmm. and you also still are allowed to do weddings. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. I told him once or twice. To quit playing cards and shooting dice, he's in the jailhouse now. Lake Placid is a community which was well known for the Olympics in 1980. They also had the Winter Olympics in 1932. After the 1980 Olympic Games, the state set up something called the Olympic Regional Development Authority to continue operating the ski jumps and the bobsled and the downhill skiing and the skating rinks that are still there. There's an outdoor speed skating rink. Is that where the the hockey... The big hockey game from uh, 1980, where we beat the Russians. Yes, the, the, the miracle the on ice. Still five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable! Do they still talk about that up there? Oh, they still talk about it, yeah. <laughs> you go into the arena, and Mel Brooks, they named the arena after the coach of the... U.S. hockey team. It's called Mel Brooks Arena. They still have something in the gift shop area with a little TV, you know, constantly replaying highlights of the game. Yeah. Here we have a kid that was 18 years old. He lived 50 miles away in a small town called Malone. Borrowed his mother's truck without his mother's knowledge and took two of his girls for a ride to Lake Placid or a joyride. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, both the girls were underage their parents didn't know where they'd taken off to. And they'd gone to Lake Placid to have a good time in the afternoon. They were girlfriends? or Well, they were friends, girlfriends. They were, he was male, they were female. Gotcha, okay. They weren't relatives. They weren't relatives. Okay. Somehow they were able to get some alcohol. They were drinking. They had some fun times. I think they went to the beach. They did some swimming. They went up and down Main Street, checked out the shops. And at some point, I guess, his mother's truck got reported as stolen. The local police happened to notice because that one of the things they have in New York State on your registration, which happens to be on the 
driver's side window on the front of the car, they have barcodes on your car now up there. And the police cars have something what they call barcode readers that if they drive past you, even going in the opposite direction, there's a camera on the back of the police car that can read the barcodes and it tells the police officer a variety of things, whether or not the registration is valid, whether the state inspection is still valid or not, or whether the vehicle happens to be reported missing or stolen or, you know, a missing person type vehicle. Well, the train came up as a missing vehicle or a possible stolen vehicle. The police turn around, turn on the sirens, and they try and stop the vehicle. The kid takes off in the vehicle. He somehow gets away from the police to some degree because there's not too many places to run in the area. And uh, he drops the girls because they're underage, and he goes taken off. Well, the only way back to where his parents lived, which was, as I say, 40, 50 miles away, is a single road that happens to go past the state police barracks, and it's the only road within 50 miles. There's no back roads. There's no other road. That's the only road. Mm-hmm. And as he's trying to avoid the police at this time, you know, the state police are now chasing him. The village police car was the one who initially noticed him. And probably within 200 yards of state police barracks, he's passing some vehicles and he runs right into a little Honda Spirit or whatever, which is a tiny little car, and he kills the two parents. And, you know, really puts the young girl that was in the back seat of the car in the hospital for over a month. You know, so he ends up getting charged with manslaughter and... And now you got an 18-year-old in court. We have to do an arraignment on who's under the influence of alcohol. And all you can really do is arraign him, remand him, and put him in jail without bail and pass the case up to county court. I know he ended up getting tried, you know, in county court, and he ended up getting sentenced to seven years of uh, state prison time. And he ended up with, you know, 15 years of probation after that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he's still on probation Uh, because this probably happened about seven years ago. But yeah, you know, you get the strange cases, because when I first started out 35 years ago, and a friend of mine who was in the bail bond business in Albany, New York, and my sister happened to work in his office, he says, you know, Bill, every now and then we get calls up in your area that are too far for us to travel, but you think you'd be interested in doing bail bonds for the office? And where I say, you know, here you have a young man, and I, the, one of the very first calls I got, very close to one of the first calls I got, was from some mother out of Florida who wanted to bail her son out of jail, who'd left Florida to go see his girlfriend because his girlfriend and her family at one point was living in Florida. They'd moved back to New York. He'd gotten some money, taken his car, and drove up to New York with his parrot, of all things. A parrot? He had a pet parrot. Did it talk? Probably did. <laughs> <laughs> did it testify? At the it didn't trial? testify, but here I get a call. This kid's sitting in jail in Plattsburgh, New York, for like, I think the bail was like a thousand bucks. The parents were divorced. He'd gone up, picked up his girlfriend that he knew in Florida, went to a state park with her. She was 16 years old. He had just turned 18. They were in a state park at night, which was closed at that time of the year. And a ranger happened to patrol the park and shine the flashlight in the car. I have no idea what was going on in the car, but technically they get arrested. And the parrot's in the car with them? No, the parrot was back in the cheap motel room <laughs> without the kid. 
you know, the parents didn't know where the girl was, so they reported her missing. Mm -hmm. And the ranger found out, you know, by accident where they were. And because he's over 18 and she's 16, he gets charged with statutory rape. Mm -hmm. And he ends up in the county jail at $1,000 bail because he had no residency. He's from Florida. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the county or the town judge in that area put him in jail. So I get the mother calling me from Florida. Can you bail my son out of jail? I'm like, ma'am, you're in Florida. I'm up here. How are we going to do any paperwork? Because a bail bond essentially is is a financial loan based on security. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't do any paperwork. On top of which, his mother's name happened to be Sandy Beach. (laughs) From Florida. Wanted to get a bail bond for her son who's sitting in jail. And his name probably was Beach at the time. And she says, I'm worried about my son and I'm worried about his parrot in the motel room as to who's feeding it or what's happening. (laughs) Brother. Wow. So, you know, well, I'm sorry, not much I can do, you know. He got himself into it and... So I think sometime either later that evening or next morning I get a phone call from the father who had a reputable job and I was able to verify it. And I says, you know, for $1,000 bail, what it costs me to charge you and verify the security, I really can't do much. And the father says, well, would you mind if I wired up the money to you and gave you some extra money to make the trip because it was a 50-mile trip for me one way? to go and bail this kid out and let him get back to his parrot in his car. And I said, fine, you know. I'm not supposed to really do that, but send me the money because you don't have anybody else up here. Obviously, the family that he went to see wasn't willing to talk to him and get involved with the kid because they didn't want the kid near their daughter. It was a good excuse to go shopping for me, you know, at Walmart in Plattsburgh because that was the closest Walmart anyway. Uh Make a weekly trip, go get the kid out of jail, post his money, and the guy was taking a chance, you know, as to who I was. If he had to check, he knew who I was, and could always verify my license and stuff like that, so. In jail, in jail without the bail, in jail, we're in jail because we failed. I don't know if you heard about the uh, big jailbreak that we had up in that area. No, do Uh, tell. This wasn't a court case I had, but they have a maximum security prison probably about 35 miles away from Lake Placid called Danamora. And they had a couple of hardcore criminals serving life in there, whereby somehow by getting into a relationship with one of the female prison personnels, they were able to get materials to somehow break out of their cell that they were in, because, you know, it's like some of the shows you might see on uh, Hogan's Heroes, where Mm -hmm. they can get out of a jail and cut a cell block cell and somehow get into a passageway behind the cell blocks where maybe the heating pipes ran and the plumbing pipes ran. Well, these guys somehow were able to get out of the state prison that had 40-foot-high concrete walls with guard towers to come up on a sewer on Main Street at 3 o'clock in the morning and get out of prison. It's like the prison break show, if you've ever it seen It was that. a prison break, yeah. yeah. They hadn't had one forever, you know, but somehow, even though I guess she had smuggled in certain tools in frozen hamburger, and because she was an employee, she was able to get it through x-ray or whatever, because she had a relationship going with these two inmates. 
Wow. They were able to escape from Danamora. They made a movie about it. I forget what the name of the movie is, but um, to make a long story short, they had a big police hunt for them. I think it lasted three or four days because mm-hmm. it's a very wooded area where they got out. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of back hunting camps, one of them they found into. They eventually got close enough to the Canadian border where they thought they could get across the border and get mm-hmm. into Canada. They kind of got split up one day. One of them got caught because the state police were out with dogs, and Mm -hmm. they got the trail of one of them because somebody reported some of their hunting camps, you know, had been broken into. So one of them got caught. The other one got close enough to the border where they had a shootout and got killed. Oh, wow. So that was the big story about the Danamora prison break. The lady prison guard who assisted them, you know, that was another story that was in the local news and big trial, and she ended up doing 20 years. And wow. Another one was someone who got a speeding ticket through a school zone. Turned out the guy that was speeding through a school zone was a school bus driver that was off duty. You know what I do for a side living, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then you get all kinds of reasons why, you know, he had to go through there, but you knew what the school was. You drive... A school bus in that area, they have flashing lights telling you what the <laughs> speed limit is, and you get a whole, you know, litany of, well, Judge, you know, there was hardly anybody around, and I really had to get somewhere. And eventually, you know, it's like, come on, you of all people should know better than anybody else. And he says, well, can't you reduce it to another charge? And I says, well, you got to deal with the district attorney. Okay, if you want to plead. Not guilty and have a trial, you can have a trial on the case. If you think you're going to get found guilty, you better try for a plea bargain agreement. But considering the speed that you were going at, because I think it got caught doing 53 and a 25 in a school zone. Oh my goodness. You know. <laughs> Eventually, he ended up pleading guilty to it. He missed a couple of court dates, had some lame excuse why he couldn't come to court. Finally, I ended up finding him, which was probably close to the maximum. He got upset with me, started calling me names. You know, he says, well, Judge, you know, you're throwing the book at me. And I says, well, would you like me to go through a list of reasons, maybe why I should, you know, that you gave me cause to? You know, I didn't quite throw the whole book at you if you wanted to figure that out. <laughs> you know, and then you finally find him and assess him, and then he comes up with, well, you know, I'm a school bus driver. It's summertime. I'm not being paid. Can I make payments? And I says, well... I'll let you do payments if you make payments on a regular basis. If you miss a payment, you will spend at least one week in jail. Naturally, he missed a payment. Man, the bar must be low up there for school bus drivers. I needed money cause I had none. I fought the law and the law won. I fought the law and the law won. Now let's go over to Korea. So first of all, do you mind explaining how you ended up in Korea? Well, I was drafted. Do you remember your first memories when you guys were flying over Korea? Well, it's a commercial plane. You know, believe it or not, most of the military used commercial planes. But it was full of military people. It wasn't like they put you on an olive green, old, army-looking plane. It was you went through a regular commercial airport, just like you would anybody else. But you had your orders that 
basically get you on the plane and all that, but we did a stopover in Japan. Of course, you know, they just herded us through like cattle. We didn't know nothing about nothing. We just did what they told us. And so there wasn't much, wasn't any independence, any adventure. That, but we, they did put us up at a motel in Japan. And uh, we just spent the night. Of course, they herded you in. And the next morning, they herded you out, you know. And I just remember looking out the window, and there was Japan. <laughs> but you were tired and worn out. You didn't have time. You couldn't sightsee. You weren't allowed to go anywhere. But What was your barracks like? Well, the barracks were what they call a Quonset hut. And it's just a kind of a half-moon uh, metal building. And I think the reason they could do them, because they were put together with screws, and they could unscrew them and take them and move to the next place, you know. It was corrugated metal. They may have made a bridge out of it. I don't know. They may have had many uses for the same parts. I don't know. But you still see them around. People buy them in army surplus stores or they get the kits or something. On occasion, you said you would, you and some of your friends would go into the villages. Yeah. What were some of your impressions of that? Well, not much. Uh, we didn't do that much because we didn't, didn't have any money and you basically didn't know what the sign said or the buses to get on. It's best if you had a buddy that maybe knew their way around, you know. But there was a USO club in town, in Seoul, and that was basically the place we went, you know. <clears throat> they had, like, music and things? Well, you could get a cot for the night, and, you know, they uh, probably had some refreshments, and depending on, there was some schedule, probably had bands every now and then. You know, like the USO shows you see only on a smaller scale. And I guess you could find a schedule and see where something was and go see it a certain time. But it's just whenever we get a weekend off, we'd go in and meander around a little bit. And we'd probably walk through the town some, but not too much. You know, they had warned us not to get too involved in the city people because we, you know, we, were, we didn't know our way around. We could get in trouble pretty easy. You told me once that You'd every once in a while you'd see uh, guys that they were trying to sell something. They were they were Korean and they were trying to sell to other Koreans, and they kind of had an act or a kind of a carnival barker kind of thing going. And you you guys would get curious and stop. They would sell anything anywhere. You know, you could be walking down the sidewalk and there would be a little blanket laying there with combs on it, mm. or just whatever they could to get a hold of to try to sell. I, I don't know if they said most of it came off the black market probably did. Most of the products they made in South Korea, they weren't allowed to sell within the country. They were all made for export. The government wouldn't let them. It was, you know, part of their economy to to export them and make money that way. So anything that came out on the street, either they snuck out of their factory or from the black market, I suppose, you know, that's what we were always told. Their culture reminded me of the United States about 50 years earlier. The people acted the way Americans acted you know, a long time ago. And uh, they had the street vendors, a guy maybe selling some kind of a snakes in jars. We saw a lot. They were really proud of snakes. Snakes was a big deal. It cured a lot of things. And uh, I guess they had them in formaldehyde or something, but they had these snakes in jars. And we couldn't understand the people, but they'd had this barker standing up on a soapbox or something. He was telling about whatever it was, you know, probably everything he would do, probably like snake oil mm-hmm. in the old West. And uh, 
sometimes they didn't want GIs around, and the, the Barker knew enough English to say, go away, GI, GI, go away, please go away. <laughs> I don't know what, if previously GIs had made fun of them or caused a problem or scoffed, because it was, it was snake oil is what it was, you know, and they might have caused a scene, I don't know, but... They told us to go away. We were determined we weren't going to go away. We, we stood there. We didn't cause any trouble. They finally quit hollering at us. They saw that we weren't going to do anything. We weren't going to leave, you know. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see what it was. People would have little panes of glass and a glass. They were trying to sell a glass cutter. And they could make little swirls, break it, make a little swirl. I mean, they could make, they could take a glass cutter and scribe an elephant and break it and it looked perfect. Of course, when you get it home and try to do it, it it broke all the wrong places, but they were they were good at doing what they did. I don't know if they had special glass for the ones they used or special cutters, but things like that. Their economy was very poor, so they, they had to be ingenious about trying to get some income, you know. But then uh, along the city streets, so to speak, there were vendors, probably like in a large city like New York where people actually lived right on the curb, you know, and they'd set out there fire and and cook stuff you know right there as you walk by they somebody might have a sewing machine right there on the sidewalk and they fix your shoes or whatever you mean anything was there just very unusual but like i said it kind of reminded me of the u.s what i saw of the u.s the history of the pre you know the war days you know when thing or the uh what was the recession what was it called the, the great depression the you know depression how people were, you know, they were scraping by for anything to try to make some money. Mm -hmm. And that kind of reminded me of the way they were. They're very poor, you know. Because the Korean War had just ended, what, 10 years previous to, to you? Probably going? so, yeah. And one thing was like uh, schoolgirls would walk down the street with their arms, uh, with holding hands, you know. Well, in that time back home, they wouldn't do that anymore. But I do remember when I was a young kid, Girls would hold hands walking down the sidewalk and anything about it. And guys in South Korea, I saw they'd, they're chummy, you know, mm -hmm. and they'd have their arms around each other's shoulder, walking down the sidewalk, laughing and giggling. Like I remember the U.S. being many, many years ago, but, they, you know, they wouldn't do that kind of stuff now. Well, they may now, but they didn't <laughs> back then. <laughs> Their GIs were very, very poor, and they integrated a few of them with American GIs to try to, I guess, train them for their army or, or something. And uh, it was on a cold night. They wouldn't think anything, anything about, about two guys sleeping in the same bed to keep warm. Didn't think anything about it, you know. Whereas the GIs, they'd freeze to death before they'd do that, you know. <laughs> you weren't all that far from the DMZ. It was a few-hour trip, as I recall, you know, you, to take a tour up there, yeah. yeah. And so you, you did go up there once? Did go up there once. We had scheduled many several times, and the day before, there'd be some kind of incident, or a few days before, somehow the tensions would get tight uh, up there on the, the DMZ, and they'd cancel the trip. So it, we had to sign up several times before we ever actually made it up there. And for folks that don't know their Korean history, the... DMZ stands for Demilitarized Zone. Yes. Right. And it was a little area where the North and South Koreans would meet. 
Right. It was kind of like a neutral zone. Right. Either side of it was called the point of no return. You know, if you went north, it was the point of no return. If you went south, it was the point of no return. But I don't know how wide that was. It was on the parallel of some sort. You were telling me about this whole competition between... There's this fierce competition between the north and south. And a lot of times it would have to do with who had the, the taller flagpole or, or <clears throat> uh, the bigger this or that. Right. Uh, on the DMZ, right down the, the line, the, the line between the north and the south, they had buildings they would meet and negotiate and have, I guess, try to get treaties and whatnot. The tables were pretty much right on the line between the north and the south, and the south was, was actually United Nations, who it was. And that included South Koreans and Americans and other nations. And so this line is almost like when you hear about people living in an apartment together and they get in a fight, they, they draw, they tape a line right through the middle of the, the apartment. And so this building had a line yeah. right through it. Yeah, there's been divorced people that will take, <laughs> take masking tape and put a line down the middle of their house. Right. Them, you know, crazy. But the building was built that way intentionally. <laughs> Where the, technically the North would set on, they would still be in North Korea and the United Nations would still be in South Korea and they'd set a table and, and talk about whatever issues or treaties or agreements they were trying to come to. They played mental games with each other, you know, trying to outdo each other. I, I don't know how it got started, but at one time the North Koreans, since they were short people anyway, they started putting platforms under their chairs to make them appear to be bigger people. They got into a flag competition. Everybody was allowed to carry their own flag in for the meetings, but every time they met, a flag, somebody else's flag was a little bigger. And eventually, they had to have a, a meeting, a special meeting. This is two serious disputes they had to put on hold to talk about flags and how they were going to regulate the flags. And they come up with the size, I don't know, a millimeter. About three foot, three or four foot, they decided, and... The United Nations and the U.S., they were just as guilty as the other side. You know, they weren't as far as these mind games they played. But anyway, and when they finally decided how tall the pole should be, then the, so the story they told, well, the North came in the next day and their base was bigger. It had one more tier. <laughs> Put it about an inch taller. And uh, I think at one point they just decided, well... They're going to, you know, let them have it, you know. But, but the one thing they couldn't do was they couldn't grow tall people. And it was, it was another way of intimidating. And to be assigned, to be on duty, to have your duty be on in the DMZ area, on the United Nations side, you had to be something over six feet. I'm not for sure what it was. And, of course, they couldn't come close to that. All their people were pretty short. And it was just another way of intimidating, you know, the people that they were bigger and, Right. Trying to make them feel insignificant or inferior, you know. You also said that when you were there, you were told, like, not to react to the North Korean soldiers because they could get pretty belligerent on their side of the the line. Right. We had to go to a little class, and they briefed us on what to expect and what not to do. And part of it was to ignore them, not even look their direction. Certainly don't keep your hands down to your side. Don't raise your hands up towards your body or shoulder, or they would they would say you were making some kind of gesture towards them. And they were watching with cameras. They'd take pictures. And right after a, a group was up there, they'd come to the table the next meeting with all these pictures of 
how people were mistreating them, that we weren't serious about having peace, that our people were still making gestures or whatever, you know. It was, because you said the North Koreans sometimes would give the middle finger. Yeah, they they, they knew all the GI signs to intimidate <laughs> and try to get a reaction. And there was always, a, every now and then, somebody didn't have enough sense just to you know keep her mouth shut and keep her hands down. But And then it'd be another <laughs> issue, kind of like selling the flags, They'd have them issue bringing them all these pictures of all these gestures or things they were saying that we were being unfair. We really weren't serious about trying to reach a treaty, you know, that we were just up to mischief or whatever, you know. You had told me once that in your barracks, one of the your fellow soldiers, I guess, had gotten a dog. Yeah, and it become a problem. Some of the GIs every now and then would get a get a dog for a, a pet. There, not many dogs weren't too many pets in that culture. They were still used in the butcher shop sure. and uh, part of their diet. This one guy in our barracks, for some reason, I don't know if he did a rescue or what, but he ended up with a dog. I don't know how you get a pet dog in South Korea, but uh, he did, and it was a puppy. Of course, you know, being in the service in the barracks, you're gone all day long. And it was a terrible place to try to raise a puppy or house break it. And this dog was just messing up the barracks. Guys come home from work, from their workstation, and there'd be dog mess all over the barracks, you know, and... It never wasn't in his area. It was always in somebody else's area. <laughs> and they were complaining and complaining. And, and he was aware of it. It was a problem. But I guess he just couldn't do anything about it. But uh, one guy was was particularly upset about it. And uh, they devised a plan that uh, we worked off that base and went to another base. And so it was a travel distance every day to uh, travel to our workplace. They devised this plan that a certain day or a certain time they was going to entice this dog into one of the trucks and take him out in the country and let him off. And uh, they had a hard time. They finally, I think, got him with a hamburger or something. They got back from the mess hall. Uh-huh. And uh, and they had to do it behind closed doors or out of sight so people wouldn't know what really happened. But uh, anyway, they finally got the puppy in the, uh, in the truck and took him off and let him loose, you know. And then, of course, all of a sudden the guy... Couldn't figure out where his puppy was, and of course nobody said anything. They were glad to get rid of him, but uh, I think later on we saw him tied up behind somebody's house. We don't know if he's getting ready to be somebody's <laughs> supper or what. You know, oh, no. Kind of felt a little bit bad, you know, about it. But that family might have been happy to get it. It might have been. It might have been steak day at their house. I don't know, but uh, you know, you look back and think, well, did they handle it right? But it wasn't right for him to put that dog in that situation and just. Ma- I'm surprised the military, like the sergeant or somebody, didn't get wind of it and put a stop to it. But Some of the stuff that you did was classified, and maybe is some of it still classified? It probably is. I don't know how much it is, but we worked in a secure, we had to work in a secure area and because it had to do with weapons. Everything uh, was kind of um, redundant, I would say, to keep security. They called it the two-man rule. Uh, basically, it had... 
every uh, company or every uh, platoon or every organization, they had an A team and a B team. The A team knew a half of one part of everything and the B team knew the other half. If you had locks, they were combination locks, like maybe seven digits, and the A team would, either, would know the first three in the middle and the B team would know the middle and the last three digits so that any place you got in, it's called the reliability program, I think they called it. Any place to do anything, there had to be two people. If you was gonna, somebody was going to conspire to do something, you'd have to get somebody on the other team to conspire with you, you know. And even going into the secure areas, they had an A guard and a B guard. You just couldn't have one guard by itself. You always had to have someone to back up the other. Or, and so when we went into a building or went into a place or had to use a lock, there was an A team and B team. A guy would go up and he'd do the first part and he had to get back out of, out of eyesight and let the eye go in and finish up. And it was the same way inside the building. If we had to go to the restroom and we had to walk through a secure area, you had to go as a A team and a B team for security reasons, to make sure. And even uh, the equipment we worked on to arm them, it always took two people. And I don't know how it worked out on the battle in the real world, but as far as the maintenance of uh, these items, uh, it always took two people to get to certain places. I would say probably it happened the same way out on the battle station or if they were going to do anything serious, you just couldn't be in the uh, in the hands of one person. You always had to be two people to make sure that you know uh, security was kept. Part of our job was to maintain and clean radioactive materials. There was two components to this radioactive mechanism. And um, it took these two components to activate it. They only came together when they wanted the radioactivity to take place. In the course of cleaning and maintaining these things, you know, they were in storage for long periods of time and they had to be brought out and make sure there wasn't any corrosion and they had to clean them. These two parts were there on the work table. They were separated from each other, but they were never supposed to be together. If you put them together, that's what triggered the radioactive response. And one guy, just not thinking, just thought, well, you know, I, I don't know if those, it took two two pieces fitting together. And somehow he got in his mind, well, I'm going to see if they really fit, you know, without thinking that he was actually starting a radioactive incident. Oh. And even though that it didn't trigger anything major, it exposed him to radiation. He was holding it up against his body and just, well, I want if they see they really fit. This, this, this part looks bigger than the other. Surely they don't go together or something like or See if they didn't line up. Uh-huh. It's part of maintenance. I think it was, but he just didn't think, you know, that you're not supposed to do that. It's like, well, I want to see if this, this gunpowder is any good. I'm going to hit it with a hammer to see if it's any good, you know. <laughs> not thinking, well, well, you're doing what you're not supposed to do to gunpowder. Right. And uh, he, he got real sick. I, I don't know if he finally died or not, but he was exposed to high a dose of radioactivity. Just, just 
you know, something you think about, well, you know, maybe I could have done something like that. You know, you got, you know, you got a nut and a bolt that you know is supposed to work together. Well, mm-hmm. we'll see if the nut really fits on the bolt, you know. You're not thinking, well, that's, that's the triggering mechanism. Was anybody close by when he did that? Well, there again, you have to have an A team and a B team, but the other guy could have been at the other end and not thinking, you know, and just turned his back or something like that. Did anybody else get sick besides that guy? I, I don't know. It was real isolated. They don't talk about it that much. They mostly used it in classroom to explain to you how serious it was not to try to do anything out of... All of our instructions, we had a book of instructions. There again, the A team and the B team. They would say, then somebody would read the instructions. And they would say, take out the Phillips screw on the top of... Uh, the turning ring or what it was. And the the worker, A and B worker, would do it, and A guy would say, check, and the B guy would say, check. And then on the instruction sheet, A guy had to check his check, and the B guy had to check his check to show. It took an enormous amount of people to take one screw out to make sure everything was done exactly. And there was the, the reliability program to make sure everyone was reliable that everything was done. Also to keep security. Keep security, yeah, right. I mean, you could have a, a time when you say, put the clip in place, and the guy say, I've got it in place, and maybe he did or didn't do it or forgot or something. There was always somebody there to verify. I don't forget the wording. One would, would say they done it, and the other one would say verify, I think was the word they used. But then they had to double check the step. Everything was by step. You didn't go do anything that was, there wasn't a step there to do it. And that's what this one guy had done. It didn't say place these two pieces together to see if it fit. He just did that on his own. And that was the, the analogy they were making or the training they were giving us. Don't do anything that's not in the, not in the instructions. If you're still in a Korean mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 243, a listen, where Korean-American Sophia Cho Johnson shares her story and opinions on history, politics, and religion. In fact, I should thank Sophia and her parents who helped us find the Korean music you heard today that was appropriate for the time period. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Can't say what